Hello everyone, this is the ninth episode of Bible Beyond, and today our passage comes from Psalm 8. It says, O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the eighth psalm in the Bible. And in this psalm, it talks about God's glory. It says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But what's really interesting about this psalm is that it goes in depth about how our purpose relates to God being glorified. So today, in this episode of Bible Beyond, we're going to learn about what God's glory is, how it relates to us, and how we can glorify Him in our daily lives. All this and more on Bible Beyond. One of the most foundational beliefs of Christianity is the fact that God is great. And that's really central to uh, the message of Christianity and the gospel, because we worship God. So if we are to believe that he deserves our worship and our praise, he must be great. So that's a core belief of Christianity. And we know that he's great because he created Everything. That's one of the defining uh, moments that establishes who he is. The fact that he created everything, the universe and the stars and the moon and the trees and nature and everything that we see today, that establishes his power and authority over everything in our lives. Uh, Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This uh, little passage in Colossians 1.16 is really interesting because we typically think of what God created as nature and what naturally surrounds us without any sort of human intervention. And those things are like the trees and the grass and the water, the land and the sea. And if we look above into the sky, we'll see the sun and the moon and the stars, which all existed 
before humanity had any control or any effect on this creation. But oftentimes, what we may not consider is that God isn't only behind the natural things like the sun and the moon and the stars and the trees. He's also behind the things that we have created. Remember, uh, this Colossians 1.16, it says, All things were created through him and for him. All things. Now, things like medicine that humanity has made for a certain purpose may not seem like God has any part of that, but the reality is that God created the vitamins and minerals and the resources necessary to create that medicine. And not only that, but he also created the ability, he gave humans the ability to craft that medicine. He made the material and the means for that to be created. So not only in the natural world can we see his divine hand affecting everything around us, but also in what we have created, we can see his impact. And that's why it says right here, all things were created through him and for him. All things, not just what he originally created, but in everything we can see God's handiwork. So, what part does humanity play in this creation that God has made? Well, in Genesis, when God creates uh, the entirety of the universe and he makes all of the animals and plants, the stars, he also creates mankind to rule over his creation alongside him. It says in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the point here is that God created this creation and he placed humanity in it with a set of commands. They are to uh, keep the garden and to work it, to keep it running, and they are also given the commands not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So here God is, he creates this creation, and he puts humanity in it to care for it. Now that's a simple enough concept to understand. The fact that God created humanity to work and to tend to his creation. That's not that difficult to understand. That's not much of a problem. But one of the questions when you read this that may quickly arise is, why did God choose to have humanity rule his creation? Why did he choose humanity as partners in this work to take care of his creation? Why would he choose humanity? See, this is a very important question that we need to answer. We have to understand why God chose humanity to rule and to keep and to tend to the garden, to his creation, and for to understand the rest of this psalm about how man is supposed to glorify God. So because of that, I want to explain the question a little further. Why did God choose humanity? 
And I want to go to Exodus 3.14. Exodus 3.14, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When we first read this verse, Exodus 3.14, and God says to Moses, I am who I am, it probably sounds like a really confusing answer. See, when you first meet someone and you ask them, Hi, uh, my name's so-and-so. By the way, what's your name? You expect them to say something like John or Bob. You don't expect them to say, I am who I am. That seems like such a strange response to say to someone when you first meet them. But because of who God is, this is actually the perfect way to answer Moses' question. This is the perfect way to introduce himself. Because when us as humans, we give our names and we state who we are, we're actually offering something much more profound than just a word. Because when we introduce ourselves to someone and we say who we are, who we are has been impacted by our experiences and who we know and who our parents are and many, many thousands, if not millions of factors that have shaped who we are. For example, uh, if if someone were to ask me, hey, uh, what's your name? And I say, Jonathan. Well, what I'm saying is that not only my name is Jonathan, but my parents named me Jonathan, right? That's uh, kind of automatically what you would assume. I had parents who decided his name will be Jonathan. And if we take that a step further, if we consider maybe our personalities and stuff like that, well, that has been affected by where and when we grew up. It's been affected by who we know and who we relate to, who we're friends with. It's been affected by the good and bad things that have happened over the course of our lives that have impacted who we are. So when I say to you, my name is Jonathan, when I introduce myself as a human being, I'm presenting myself as someone who has been impacted by innumerable factors so that I'm the person who I am today. But that same logic can't be applied to God. Because God is not affected by these worldly things that have shaped who we are. See, God, when Moses asks him, what is your name, who are you? Well, God can't give him the name that his parents gave him. Because God has no parents. God created the idea of parents, so there were no parents to give him a name. And if we want to know about his personality, well, he can't speak about his previous experiences and how they've shaped him, because the things that happen on this earth, in this universe, don't change who an all-powerful, all-knowing God is. See, as I'm recording this podcast... I know that God is going to be the same before I publish it and after I publish it. It's not like when I release it to people 
that he'll automatically change. It's not like this event in this world will impact who God is and shape his nature. So because there aren't any factors that can influence who God is, then that means he must establish who he is. In other words, because he's the deity that created this universe, this universe has no tangible impact on him. He doesn't change and become a different person based on what happens here, because God is all-powerful. So God is the one, because he's all-powerful, he is the one, the only one, who can establish who he is. So when he gives Moses this puzzling response of, I am who I am, it's actually the perfect way to describe himself. God is who God is. We are a product of uh, our creation and our genetics and our circumstances and our friends and who we know and our experiences, but none of that applies to God. God is who God is. And that's why he says to Moses, I am who I am. Now, that may be a little confusing, but my point is that God is self-sufficient. He has no need for food or water or air because none of those things impact who he is. So God is self-sufficient. That's the first thing, that's the first basic thing that we need to understand uh, in order to ponder the question, why did God choose to rule with humanity? And this is why God's self-sufficiency is important. Because if God is completely self-sufficient, then there doesn't seem like there will be any need for humans. There doesn't seem like there will be any need for him to create caretakers to tend to this creation. It doesn't seem like there's any purpose for humanity to be here. There's no good reason that God needs humanity in order to take care of his creation. Because if God is self-sufficient, then that means he can tend to his creation however he likes. He can do it by himself. So the first question is, why did God create these caretakers known as man and woman? But more than that, we can actually take this a step further and ask the next question, why did he create humanity with a sinful nature? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we say that we have a sinful nature, it means that we naturally want to do what God does not. God, as we've already established, is great and good, and we are not. In fact, going back to this uh, chapter in Genesis where it says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. That's what God wanted to happen. Humanity actually decides to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They decide that what they want to happen, what they want to do, is different from God's will. 
our wills, what we want to do and what God wants to do, are removed. They're different. They're separate. Which, come to think of it, seems like a very strange thing to create in humanity if you want them to rule your creation according to how you would like it to be ruled. Uh, Think of it this way. Maybe to put uh, this question into perspective, if there's a small business that only has one person running it, and that person can uh, take care of it without anyone else's intervention or assistance, then there's no reason to hire another person. If they're completely capable of caring for the business and for running it, then there's no need to get others involved. And even if the business does grow and there all of a sudden is a need for an employee, then you don't go and find someone who is unqualified. No, no, no. You, you want to find someone who is qualified for the job. You want to find someone who has the skills, who is the kind of person who would work and take care of the business in the same way that you would. But God, as we've already established, because he's self-sufficient, because he is who he is, he has no need for another employee. And even if he did, why would he make someone underqualified to do this job? Why would he create someone uh, to care for his creation if they don't want to do it in the way that God has established? It seems like a, a very strange question and one that we need to solve in order to understand our purpose in relation to God's glory. So in order to understand why God created humanity, we need to understand what God's glory is. I've thrown around the term of God's glory uh, multiple times already in this episode, but we need to establish a definition of what God's glory is in order to understand humanity's purpose in his glorious creation. So, what is God's glory? Well, it's a little hard to define glory because in some ways it's a little bit subjective. It's hard to define the word fun because in order to understand completely what fun is, you kind of have to experience it in order to have a true understanding of fun. But if we do need to put it in a definition, if we do need to put it in understandable terms, then I think the best way to define God's glory is to think of it as his observable greatness. We can see that, as it says in our original text, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. Where God's glory seems to be displayed in the Bible is when it's observed, when his greatness is observed. And that can be uh, through his creation, through what he's made, when we see his divine hand working through that, we can observe his glory. But also, we can observe his glory in how he changes things like our hearts and how he makes us new people, 
how he was able to cleanse us from all sin. That Those kinds of miracles, we can also see the glory of God and his greatness in those things also. Now, by this definition, God is glorified, glory is brought to God when we experience and we're aware of his greatness. So that's the definition that we're going to assume for the glory of God. The glory of God is his observable greatness, and likewise, he is glorified when we do observe his greatness. So now, uh, coming back to our original question, why does God choose humanity, and not just humanity, but sinful humanity, to rule the garden? Why does he allow them uh, to engage in his creation, in his work, if he chooses humanity and a group of people that don't want to do what his will is? Why would he do such a thing? Well, according to our definition, if we stick with this definition of God's glory and glorifying God, then God didn't create humanity because he needed help with the garden. And he didn't create a sinful humanity because he was incapable of creating perfect caretakers. Instead, he created humanity to bring glory to his self. Let me explain. The best way that I can uh, make this really uh, understandable is to compare the relationship of God and humanity to a race. Let's pretend that you live in a small town and there's a local race in the middle of town. And everyone gets together, all the runners uh, have their own trainers, and it's going to be fun. Eventually, everyone's going to get together and they'll have trained, they'll then trained by their coaches, and when they run, when they start the race, whoever wins will have done so because of the knowledge and the preparation that their coach has given them. Now, let's say that you're one of the coaches in that race, and you have your own uh, runner that you're going to teach and train, that you're going to coach in order that he will win the race. The thing is that a large part of your success as a coach depends on who it is that you're training. So let's pretend that the person you're training is Usain Bolt, the fastest man to ever live. Let's say you train him, uh, you teach him everything you know, uh, you put him in the best possible shape in order to win that race at your local town. Well, it's not going to be a surprise when he wins because he's the fastest man to ever live. But the thing is, Usain Bolt didn't need any of your knowledge, any of your skill or past experience in order to win that race. He really didn't. He already knew all of, all of that stuff. He already had that capability to run so quickly. He didn't ever need you in the first place in order to win that race. And because of that, you won't get much credit for training Usain Bolt. Because he never needed you in the first place in order to actually win the race. But, on the other hand, let's pretend that the person who you're training is not the fastest man to ever live, but it's a child, a small child. And you have to teach him to compete against some of the greatest runners in the town. 
See, in that case, it is very dependent on you and what you know and what you've done that will determine how well that little child does in the race. And let's say by some miracle, uh, in the analogy, you're able to train this child so that they can beat full-grown adults, then you will receive a lot of credit for being able to do such an astounding feat. To take the limitations of a child and be able to stretch them to accomplish such a great feat. And by that, you will, in a way, we could say that that coach would be glorified. You can probably see where I'm getting here. Let's apply this analogy to God's creation and humanity. If God created a perfect caretaker who could do everything and follow God's command perfectly without any assistance from him whatsoever, how much credit would go to God? I mean, sure, he created him, and I guess that is pretty impressive, but once this perfect caretaker was created, God didn't have to do anything, and he ceases to be glorified. And just as having a perfect caretaker would limit the glory that God gets, if he never created a caretaker, if he ruled creation all by himself, well, that still wouldn't be very impressive. Because again, he is God. He is self-sufficient. He is who he says he is. Like, uh, of course he can take care of his creation. He's the one who created it in the first place. But imagine if God could somehow take a sinful humanity and change who they fundamentally are to bring them to repentance, to bring them to godliness and righteousness with hearts that are willing to obey him. Doesn't that bring so much more glory to God? Doesn't that give him so much more credit? Aren't we impressed by the fact that he was able to accomplish such a feat? How he took our hopelessness and made it capable of communing with God, having a relationship with him, and ruling his creation justly? That is more impressive than any other option. So when the psalm says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place— and the psalmist asks the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? The reason is because in this situation, when God does redeem humanity, then glory is brought to him. He is glorified so much more by the fact that he has saved us than, in, than just doing it all himself. And that's why it says later on, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. He has made us imperfect, incapable of the task he has given us, but crowned him with glory and honor, given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And that's the reasoning for why God 
created humanity. That's the purpose that God created humanity with. It's not because God needed humanity. It's not because he was lacking in something. But because he knew of the opportunity to glorify God. And that is why he is mindful of us. And that is why he cares for us. Now, as great as that is, that still does leave us with one tiny question. Uh, It's the fact that Adam and Eve were not just, and they were not righteous, and they did not obey God. So how does God fix that? How does he actually transfer humanity from a state of brokenness to a state of righteousness? In order so that through that process he would receive glory. How does God do that? Well, as it says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we're separated from God. We cannot engage with him and have a relationship with him as was first intended. We can't rule alongside God in a perfect garden because we are no longer perfect. So, in order to remove the effects of our sin, God took the sin that had poisoned us and he put it on his son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This he and him that is referred to, that is Jesus, who knew no sin. He was perfect. He he was with God, with the Father, in need of nothing. He was perfect, and he was without sin, without the deadly consequences of our sin. But it says, for our sake, so that we could be made righteous, he made him Jesus, who did not know sin, he put the effects of our sin on Jesus. So that we are without the sin, we are without the unrighteousness, and we can become the righteousness of God. So that is the reason why God created a sinful humanity to rule the garden. And how he receives glory by bringing us back to him through his son. And when we accept that Jesus did that for us, when we accept that Jesus took the effects of our sins to make us the righteousness of God, that we might bring glory to him, that we might be with him forever, for eternity, in a relationship with God, the goodness of the universe, When we believe that Jesus made that possible, we do become the righteousness of God. When we accept that his sacrifice has cleansed us from our sins. So after learning about God's glory and what it is and how it's made possible, you may be wondering, how can I glorify God? Even if you are a Christian and you do know Christ and you do have a relationship with God the Father and you've brought glory to him in that way, you may still be wondering, how can I continue to do so? 
How can I continue to engage in this incredible process God uses by restoring broken things and making them whole to glorify Him? How can I do that? Well, I'd like to point out uh, two different places in our passage where it briefly mentions how we can glorify God. The first is at the very beginning of verse 2. It says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, the babies and the infants are compared to as us. We are comparatively helpless before the almighty sufficient God of creation. Now, what's interesting in these first few words of verse 2 is it says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. A very common theme in the Bible is how important words are, especially God's words. That's why we refer to the Bible as God's word, why we refer to Scripture as God's word, because it's so crucially important. In the first verses of John, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word is so important. And just as God used his word in Genesis to create everything, he said, let there be light, and there was light. Just as he used his word in that moment, our words can have a similar effect and glorify God in a similar fashion. In fact, words simply speaking about God and celebrating verbally his greatness through our words may actually be one of the most effective and easiest ways to glorify God. To make it known his greatness and his glory to others, and sometimes even ourselves. To talk to ourselves about the word. To talk to ourselves about his holiness. To talk to ourselves about his grace. And to share that with others who may not know about his grace that he offers who may not know about the eternal life that he's willing to give them if they accept Jesus. We can encourage each other with who God is. There's so much we can do with our words, and thus glorify God. To bring attention to the fact of what God has done for us, how he's saved us through Jesus' sacrifice, we can do that through our words, by means of speaking. So that's the first place that I can see an opportunity to glorify God. It's with our words and what we speak and write. The second way is that we can take care of what God has given us. It says in verse 6, You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. It says that God has put this creation under our control. 
And again, in Genesis, God tasks humanity with caring for his creation. Now, you may not own a pond and be able to feed the fish, and you may not own a farm and be able to feed the sheep and oxen, but that said, there are still many things that God has put under your control. You may have a house that you should take care of and make sure it's in good condition. You may have kids and children that you want to guide up and raise them in the way that they should go, so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. Maybe you have a job and a workplace where you execute tasks and you do things in order to improve the business of whatever you're a part of. We can use the freedom that God has given us in Christ. We can use that ability. We can rely on him to do well in our lives, to take care and to be good stewards of what God has given us. So those are just two ways that I see in the passage that we can right now immediately glorify God. They are by no means the only ways. There are plenty more that you could think of to bring glory to God. But if you want to get started, if you want to glorify God and bring attention to him, then you may want to start there with those two things, by our words and by stewarding, by taking care of what we have. So with that, we now know why God chose a sinful humanity to rule his creation. We know why he did it. It's in order to glorify himself, just like the coach, he receives glory when we are taken from broken state and made whole. And we know how he did it. He did it through his son. By putting the effects of our sin on his son, he cleansed us from all unrighteousness so that we are the righteousness of God. And if we want to continue to bring glory to God, if we want to continue to serve him, just as he created us way back in Genesis to do so, then we can use things like our words and actions in order to glorify him by using and relying on his ability, not our own, but his grace and his ability in order to do well. That's all for today, so let's close in prayer. Dear God, I thank you for this day uh, that we can learn about from Psalm 8, all that you have in store for us to bring us from a place of sin, and to bring us back to you. Thank you for giving us an understanding of why you created humanity in the first place. And with this knowledge intact, please help us use this new knowledge of what and why you did it in order to continue to glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been the ninth episode of Bible Beyond. A huge thanks to my grandpa for creating the great music that you're listening to right now. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, 
check back with us when we have another podcast up and available that you can listen to. As for now, have a great day.